Before we start the broadcast of the Wakefield Trinity Heritage podcast, I just wanted to make you all aware of the official sponsors for the 2023 series. Our agency are a full-service digital creative agency specialising in branding, web and content creation. They are delivering results in Wakefield for organisations such as Trinity Walk and the Wakefield Cathedral. And they offer upfront, no-nonsense marketing to help you achieve your goals. Drop them a line, follow them on all their social media accounts or take a look at their website and make our agency your agency. If you're a local business in the Wakefield area and interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop Lee or Jamie a message on the Heritage social media accounts and we'll get back to you as quick as we can. Now, over to you, Cammy. Hi, it's Cammy, Chris Kamara, and you are listening to the Trinity Heritage podcast with Jamie and Lee Robinson. They are unbelievable. Good afternoon, good morning and good evening from wherever you are listening from. My name is Jamie Robinson and welcome to episode 77 of the Wakefield Trinity Heritage Podcast and the fourth instalment of the Vacant Island video series. Just to recap once again, this is definitely not a direct rip-off of the critically acclaimed BBC Radio 1 show Desert Island Discs as we bring to you the Vacant Island videos. The hypothetical premise of this collection is to imagine that you are a castaway on a distant vacant island and all you have is three old Wakefield Trinity VHS tapes to watch over and over again. Now, once again, I've been advertising on social media regarding this, so if you're interested in appearing on the podcast for Vacant Island videos and sharing your own experiences and stories with Wakefield Trinity, then do not hesitate to contact us on any of our social media platforms. We've had a lot of people firing through already. So thank you very much for that. This, this week's guest is a familiar voice, arguably the most the most familiar voice on this podcast. He's back from a period away. I thought I'd best invite him on, otherwise he might feel a little bit left out. Um, it's my dad, Lee Robinson. How are we doing, Dad? Hello, thank you. Thank you for coming on, uh, inviting me on to my own podcast. So obviously last year we, we did the actual interview with you for Father's Day, so I won't ask similar questions in regards to that, but I will ask... Um, it'll probably lead nicely into your first game. We already know what you what comes to mind when you think of Wakefield Trinity. But wh- how did your affinity with Wakefield Trinity start? I know, I know the answer. Obviously, it's it's a, a family background. Yes, it's all family. Yeah, my granddad. Um, he was a big Trinity fan back in the day when everybody were rugby league fans. I might not have all gone to Bellevue, but my granddad was born in nineteen yeah fifteen. I think nineteen thirteen. So he watched Trinity through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and he went to Emily in 1946. On the back of that, obviously, my dad went with him. So he went in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So then, obviously, the the, the family line continued, and I went from the 1970s onwards. And just looking at, at your games, they're, they're obviously quite spread out. We'll get to them in a minute. But what what's, obviously, your, your Trinity Heritage days started from way back in the 70s when you started collecting programmes. Do you remember the, the first programme you, you, you got? It's probably the first game we've picked. That's the first Trinity one. Um, my dad, I think he did collect programmes and, and stuff, but I think he'll kick himself now. But I think he threw a lot of stuff away back in the day when maybe when he sort of moved out and settled down and went to university or went to college or whatever. So I've got from my programme collection, um, the very and I've still got it. The first one is my first game I've picked. 
So moving on to game one, obviously we've mentioned before, we've had Peter on, we've had Matty Sellers and we've had Jede Moscoda. Just briefly asking you, if you are if you are going to be cast away on a desert island, where do you think you'd be going on in this aeroplane when unfortunately it does crash land? Well, I would have to go over to the Pacific somewhere. Australia is all right, but obviously it's a big island. But there's so many, you know, I've always, with it being a rugby league area, uh, Tonga, um, Fiji, Samoa, that area. And there's so many hundreds of little islands in that area. We'll, we'll go over there. Good stuff. So game one that you've chosen and what you what you will be watching is Wakefield Trinity 47, Blackpool 13 from 16th of September 1973. There were 2,462 in attendance at Bellevue. It was in the players' number six trophy. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about the day. Why have you picked it? What 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 stands out for you in this? Well, it's the very first game I, I went to. And it's the very first game I remember. I think my dad t- said he, t- he took me to a couple of A-team matches as well. But this was the very first one I went to. And there's a sort of a big story. Not a big story, but stories linked to it. Um, 1973, I was eight years old. Uh, obviously, we mentioned my dad was a big rugby league fan. Um, we used to, he used to, back in the day, he used to be chairman of Wakefield Schools, the, the school's rugby league team. And they played at State Thorpe High School up in up in Lipset Estate. And the school was painted green. And Trinity back in the day was painted blue. All the fencing, all the terracing, they were painted blue. So I differentiated the two rugby, as in green rugby and blue rugby. Where are we going this week? Green or green rugby or blue rugby? This was the first time I went to blue rugby. So it was like a Sunday afternoon. Blackpool, as you say, Blackpool Borough, players number six trophy. Probably a, an easy game to take me to because there wasn't going to be a big crowd um, and hopefully a big win as well with being Blackpool coming. Just looking at this season in general, we played 46 games in this season, spread out over the league, Floodlit Trophy, Yorkshire Cup, Number 6 Trophy, the Challenge Cup, the Championship Trophy, and then a game against Australia as well. First of all, I guess, what what was the need for so many different kind of independent cups and trophies? I think it was sponsorship to try and get money into the game because I think the game was dead in the early 70s. There weren't many going through the gates. 1970, 71, 72, the attendances were really low. Bear in mind, a few years earlier, Trinity used to get five figures through the door. You know, and in, in 1966, the play at St. Helens in the Cup and 20,000 turned up. Now, 1966 was only, what, eight years before, seven years before this game. And the attendances in this era, suddenly you're down to... Um, Rochdale, two and a half thousand. Doncaster, two and a half thousand. This Blackpool match, two and a half thousand. Oldham came, three and a half thousand. So there was nobody turning up anywhere. And that's the case for Leeds as well and, and um, the other big teams. So I think they were trying to get money into the game with the players number six. They were a, a cigarette company with this trophy. The Yorkshire Cup, I think, were uh, sponsored by Esso, a petroleum company. Um, BBC Floodlits was sponsored by the BBC. Um, Challenge Cup didn't have a sponsorship, so that's why they cramped so much in at the beginning of the season. I think. Um, because Crew I've never heard of the players number six trophy, but I think it did. Was that the one that eventually went um turned into? Um, oh, it slipped my mind now. What what did it eventually turn into? It was it, it changed its name to the John Player Trophy John and then Player to the Trophy. Regal Trophy. Regal Trophy. That's it. Yeah. So I think it. It died out just when I was very, very young, so I never saw any games. But was it was it a big trophy to be in, or were you, would you rather just lost it and focus on the league? Oh, it was big, yeah. It, these, these, these were cigarette companies, so I think that's why it's all faded away, because the cigarette sponsorship faded away as well. But it was a big early season competition. The Challenge Cup back in the day, up until Super League years, was massive. 
Everybody wanted to play in the Challenge Cup. Everybody wanted to get to Wembley. But you had to wait until January, February to that to come around. So this trophy came along. Every team went in. Two amateurs went in as well. And you had three rounds, semi-final and a big final. Trinity got to the first final in 1972. And lost to Halifax, which was a big shock because Wakefield were flying high in the league and Halifax were quite low down in the league. And uh, I think we were winning 11-0 and lost 22-11. That was in 72. So that was two years before this. So it wasn't a bad cup to be in. I think you got a bit of money for it. But yes, you you sort of you were keen for the draw, the pick one game out of the each round and put it on grandstand on a Saturday afternoon, leading all the way to the final. Now, obviously, you, you you've managed to find the Blackpool team for me. I won't. It's, it's it's pointless because we can't find any of the first names. So we've got Hallis, Johnson, Haig, Crank, Deleuze, and Robinson at number six. Low, Brainy, Egan, Singleton, Gamble. And then either Molyneux or McCann and McLaughlin or Walker in the back row. And then 14, there isn't one. And then there's a Lewis at 15. So maybe one of those ended up playing um, at second row. Just if, if you can remember at all, a bit of background on Blackpool that time. Were they, were they a couple of leagues below? There were, there were only one league. I think in 73, it was the year before the first and second division split. Blackpool were a fairly, well, I say a new team. They were 20 years old. So I think they came in in the 50s. Um, everybody loved going because if you you got a free, you got a weekend in London uh, in Blackpool when you uh, played Blackpool Borough away, but it was always a good trip away. They always wore orange shirts, which were always looking good. Um, uh, I think it was a bright orange shirt with black and white hoops across, so they were quite spectacular when they turned up on a on a cold day. Uh, and their gra- their ground always looked over the Blackpool Tower and the sea. I don't think we went there many times. I don't think I saw Blackpool. I think in my time, we only played Blackpool away a couple of times, um, but that was in the 80s. I don't think we'd been there in the, in this era since we we played them in the 1962 Challenge Cup. So they're quite a rare side. And plus, you used to play, Yorkshire teams played Yorkshire, Lancashire teams played Lancashire. So Blackpool Borough were never on our fixture list until unless we drew them in the Cup. Did they play at Bloomfield Road? No, they had their own ground called Borough Park. So it was long before. The, 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 there were two separate grounds, stadiums in Blackpool. Interesting. So obviously you just spoke about kind of Wakefield and rugby league in general diminishing a little bit, but it was kind of coming out of Wakefield's golden age, but still there were some top players in this side. I'll read a few out for you. Well, I'll read the entire team out. So we've got Jeff Wraith at fullback, David Smith and Barry Parker on the wings, Terry Crook and Jeff Riggleson in the centres, living legend David Topless at six with Joe Bonner at seven, Rob Valentine, Mick Morgan and Roy Bratt at the, at the starting pack, Alan Tonks, Ken Enders bit, and then Neil Fox at 13. Um, Neil Fox on that day got two tries and seven goals. Wraith with a try, Smith with a try, Crook with two, Topo with one, Valentine with one, David Knowles came off the bench and got two, and then Kevin Arkin were on the bench as well. I've not actually done the research, but I bet there's I bet Neil Fox and David Topless didn't start too many games together because it's kind of a cross cross-generational. Two players. That's right, yeah. I thought I thought you were going to test me on the team, actually, but uh, and it's that that back line, it used to reel off my tongue from when I was young. You could reel off Wraith Smith, Crook, Rigglesworth, Topless Bonner. You used to have a number five called John Archer as well. And I thought I don't think John Archer had signed. So you reeled off Wraith Smith, Crook, Rigglesworth, Archer, Topless Bonner. They were sort of a really sort of set um backline for Trinity in those in those days. Uh, Topo signed in nineteen sixty-eight. Neil Fox left in 1969 and then came back in 1970. And this season was Neil Fox's last year. So I think they had four or five years playing together. 
and they were majestic. Can you imagine Topper running off Neil Fox's balls uh, all afternoon? It was it was they were fantastic to watch. And I I, I assume I'd have I'd have known he played in the pack a little bit, but I did Neil Fox played thirteen quite a lot. I think he made, he made himself because he, he was the coach at this time as well. So obviously he was a centre from nineteen fifty six all the way through to this era. And I think around about nineteen seventy seventy one, we got an influx of um, centres. Our hookers kept getting banned and sent off. I think we moved Mick Morgan from loose forward to hooker to cover, and Neil Fox slotted himself in at loose forward because he was getting a little bit slower. So he just moved into the middle. His handling skills in the middle were still supreme. So he had a good few years. Well, he had a long time because this was 1973 and he played up until 1980 um, in the the pack. So looking at this, it'll be, what are we on now? In, what are we in? March. So six months away will be a 50th anniversary watching Wakefield. Looking at this, 16th September 1973. Yeah, I realise that. So somebody else mentioned that. I know John Minard is keen on on things like this as well, and he, he he's got his 50th anniversary, I think this month, I think, when when he first went. Yeah, but I noticed that a while ago. It's 50 years since I uh, first went, so I was gonna. I hope we're still sort of celebrating uh, where we are on the 50th anniversary in, in September this year. And and final question. Obviously, you you'd have been how old at this point? Seven or eight? Eight, 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 eight years, years old. Eight years old. Then. What what was a, an eight year old Lee Robinson like? Well, obviously. Quite, quite close with his parents. He's got a younger brother as well. Probably a fanatic at this. I think I, I grew up a Leeds United fan and obviously a Trinity fan. Now, Leeds United, back in this era, were pretty good as well. They'd won the FA Cup in 72. They got to the FA Cup final in 73. But there's a lot of crowd trouble in football. So my dad wouldn't take me down to Elland Road. So I think this is with the other... The, the next, not the next best thing, but it was the, the one of the best things around that we went to Trinity instead. So I was, I was, I was, became a bit of a Trinity nut back in um, 19, 19, early in these 1970s. And uh, we went to a few games this season. Be interesting to see how many fans crossed over from watching Wakefield win in the 60s to then watching Leeds win in the early 70s. Maybe that's why the attendance has dropped as well. Mm. But just looking at that season, we finished seventh out of 16. We lost in the first round of the Floodlit Cup to, to Bramley. We ended up getting through, obviously, this round and then losing to St. Helens in the third round replay of the number six trophy. We lost in the second round of the Challenge Cup to Featherstone. We lost in the Championship Trophy to Warrington. And we actually got to the Yorkshire Cup final that year, but lost to Leeds. So it was a, an indifferent season, mid-table finish for the league, but we, we did end up getting to the Yorkshire Cup final. And looking at looking at um, the way the season started, we won 10 of our first 12 games. But then mid-season, we only won one out of 11. And then typical Wakefield fashion, we just kind of dwindled off to the end. If you, do you remember much about that? Yeah, because you seem to... That was one of the stories linked to this game. I remember, well, as an eight-year-old, I probably just I probably didn't sort of sit and digest it as I do now. So I was probably mucking around. We were, I was actually stood in front of the um, tea hut on the West Terrace. So my dad was there with his friends, and I think I was just mucking around and messing around near the, uh, near the bottom wall. And Neil, Neil Fox dislocated his shoulder, or dislocated his collarbone in his game. And I remember my dad, my dad racing down the terrace and saying, look, Neil Fox, Neil Fox is... Because I think he was talking about retiring near the end of the season. <clears throat> and he says, that you could be seeing Neil Fox's last ever game. Look, and he was going carried off with his arm in a sling. He said, we might never see him ever again play. And the, the, long, the long shot is that he played another eight years after that. The funny story is that he dislocated his, his collarbone and me being a physio, I don't think I'm sort of uh, going against medical confidentiality here because I've written about it in the past. 
but many years later as a physio I treated the same shoulder so it was like really weird and I was asking him about it I said this is and he was telling me about this Blackpool game where he actually scored one of those two tries he actually scored he was on the floor his arm was out in front of him uh, with the ball down and a Blackpool player landed on his back and, and, he's, and he's, he sprung his shoulder so it's, it's called his AC joint so it's where his collarbone goes into his um, sh- shoulder and he just skated it so he was out for uh, he missed 12 games uh, he missed two, two or three months uh, and that sort of went hand in hand with Alternate he went down a little bit because if we'd have played if he'd have played in that Yorkshire final against Leeds, we'd have probably won. We lost 7-2. And that sort of looking at that result there, I think we lost to Australia, which was a, a great game as well. Topo had a great game that night. I didn't go. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> but that, that sort of looking at that loss list, you know, like you just said, we, we only lost one out of our first eleven. Then we lost to Bramley in the in the in the cup, uh Floodlit Cup. We lost to Bramley again in the league. We lost to Featherston at home. We lost to Featherston away. And then we lost to Leeds on Boxing Day. So the, the losses losses uh, trickled in, all with Neil Fox missing. Uh, and then it, did, it wasn't too long after when he did come, come back. He fell out with the committee and left. Typical, typical Wakefield. So that's your game one. Wakefield Trinity 47, Blackpool Borough 13. Your first ever game. And, and the reason probably why we sat here right now is the reason why you were, you were taken... Uh, to that game. So game two is obviously one that will stick out in a lot of Wakefield Trinity fans' minds for for the right reasons. It's St. Helens 7, Wakefield Trinity 9. There was tw- In the Challenge Cup semi-final in 1979, the 7th of April, there was 12,393 fans at Headingley. Um, you speak about this quite often, obviously. You've, you've told me about it. You've shown me the, the try from Andrew Fletcher. Um, tell us about this game. What does it mean to you? It's probably the greatest game I've ever seen from a Wayford point of view. I know there's probably been a lot better games over the years, but I think when you're a kid, this was 79, how old was I? 14, 13, 14 at the time. Um, watching your team get to Wembley and just the way we, we got to Wembley. It wasn't just a, a semi-final win. It was just such a dramatic game. you know. And, and like two minutes from the end, we were losing. Or to three minutes from the end, we were winning. Two minutes from the end, we were losing. And then we scored in the last minute, and it still wasn't over. So that sort of, you know, when you're a kid, well, even now, you sort of love to see your team at Wembley. So, and Trinity hadn't been at Wembley since 1968. So 11 years on, um, and it had been a long, drawn cup, cup run to get there because we'd had a bad winter with the snow. But it was just the game, just the excitement. You know, I can, unfortunately, it's on YouTube now, so you can relive it every day, and it's still quite a memorable game. But uh, being there was unbelievable, really. And again, you were a couple of years on from what we've just spoke about. Now, 13, 14 years old, were you again still a fanatic? You were playing rugby league yourself. Yeah, I was playing for school. I was. I went to St Thomas of Beckett in Wakefield. Um, we had a good. We had a good side, so we we played quite regularly. Um, I don't think I was playing amateur then. I don't think I played for. I played for Stanley Rangers, but I don't think I'd gone there then. But I was still a Trinity nut, you know. By this era, we didn't we, we didn't miss many matches at all, me and my dad. And looking at the teams, we'll do the St Helens team first. We've got Peter Glynn at fullback, wingers Les Jones and Roy Mathias, who both got a try each. Bill Francis and Eddie Cunningham in the centres, Neil Holding and Ken Gwilliam in the uh, in the halves, and then a pack of Dave Chisnell, Graham Liptrot, Mel James, George Nichols. Eric Chisnell and Harry Pinner, who got a drop goal as well, with Derek Newton and Mike Hope on the bench. We were just talking about before we came on, even younger listeners who were listening to that, just tell them about that Saints team. There were a lot of internationals in there. 
Yeah, St. Helens of, of that era were like the St. Helens of, of now. They were one of the best teams in the country uh, around about 1979. The, I, I can't remember they won the league that year, but they were up there. They were always in the finals. St. Helens at home was always an exciting game. St. Helens are where we always got stuffed. So when this semi-final era, they were in 1979, it was either Bradford played witness in the other semi-final. So they're always going to be a tough draw, whoever you got. So everybody wanted Wakefield. That's St. Helens' side. I always remember they used to have a fullback called Jeff Pimlet. Now, Jeff Pimlet was a Great Britain fullback, um, and he'd been a fullback throughout the 70s. He won the Lonstone Trophy, I think 1976, maybe, um, two years, three years earlier than this. And they didn't play him. I can't remember whether they dropped him. I don't think he was injured. So Peter Glynn was normally um, a centre. Bill Francis was normally standoff, number six, and they juggled the whole team around. And it always made me smile because Peter Glynn at full-back dropped, dropped no end of balls all, all afternoon. And why they, why they dropped Jeff Pimlet, I've no idea. That pack of forwards were phenomenal. They were just Dave Chisnell, Graham Lickdrop, Mel James, George Nichols, Eric Chisnell, Ali Pinner. They were all Great Britain internationals, I believe. Uh, and that Nichols, Chisnell, Pinner, what a, what a back three were. And they were, ju- they were just a phenomenal side, similar to the Saints side of now. And you think you've got a funny story about one of the Chisnell brothers? Yeah, not so much a funny story. It's sort of when Dave Chisnell left St. Helens, or was it before St. Helens? He played for Warrington as well, maybe after after St. Helens. And I remember he was on Grandstand, one of those Warrington witness John Player games, and he cut his head open, and it was one hell of a cut. And he came off, got it stitched, put a headband back on, and went back on again. And I thought I'd never seen anything like that. I thought what a tough guy he was, and he was he went on with his big bandage on his head. Um, and, and blood trickling all over everywhere. And I thought, wow, what a sport this is. I thought, oh, I bet it's good being a physio in this game. And whether that planted the seed, I've no idea. But it always stuck out to me, did Dave Chisnell playing uh, playing on, on grandstand with his big headband around him and thinking, wow, what a tough man he is, going on with a big cut on his head. And I think you've briefly mentioned it before, but you were, I assume you, well, I know that you were at this game. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we went. All the, me, me, my dad and my brother all went. And there's the, the, the anyone out there who can find the winning try from Andrew Fletcher on YouTube, you're actually on the video, aren't you, as well? We're on the whole way through. It's, there's another fun, not it wasn't really a funny story, but for some reason, all the Wakefield fans would be if you're watching, if you bear in mind, if imagine the cameras are on the south stand, uh, and, and even on today, if you know, you can, if you can picture the Headingley ground, ground, all the Wakefield fans are on the right hand side. For some reason, we were on the left, we were in the St. Helens end, and I don't know why or how we got in there. Halfway through the second half, there was a crowd trouble and all the St. Helens fans were throwing the bricks and stones at the Wakefield fans in there. So we all ended up on the pitch. Um, so the game had to stop for a few minutes, around about an hour. And we all had to actually walk, walk up the side of the pitch near the near the white line, climb over the wall and stand on the terracing behind the um, behind the dugouts. And that's when we ended up being on telly. When St. Helens scored a couple of tries in that second half, when Abby Pinner was kicking his goals, or missing his goals, we were we were on the telly stood uh, just on the other side of the wall. Excellent stuff. And then I mean, everyone kind of knows how it went in the end. We we ended up playing witness in the Challenge Cup final. We did lose, and David Topper's got the the Lance Todd uh, winners medal. What I was looking at, which I didn't know before, there, there was twenty eight days between this winning semi final against St Helens and the final against Witness. We played eight games in between the semi final and the final. Obviously, you won't get that now just because of player welfare, but. Do you remember there being such a crammed fixture list in between the semi-final and the final? I do, yeah, because it snowed. It was a bad winter. So from um, Boxing Day 
up until mid-February. We played one game. So there were sort of eight games, seven games postponed. So then the cup run started. So the Challenge Cup took priority. So we played Featherston in the snow. We went to Oldham away in the second round in the snow. We played Barrow at home, and I think it was still cold and snowing in March. So all those games that were postponed, they were all played in April. So bear in mind, in April, I think we played we played on the 1st, the 4th, the 7th, the 10th, the 13th, the 15th, and so on all the way through. We were sometimes playing Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday again. And I was just looking at them before we lost the majority as well. Did we lose six out of eight games or something? We did, but we had to put the A-team in because obviously we were having a cup run. So we were we were trying to get to Wembley. We played, we, we, we played St. Helens and won. And then, like you said, there was a big gap between the semi-final and Wembley. We were also near the relegation zone, so we couldn't really afford to lose too many. So a lot of those losses, we lost to Workington Town at home, 39-11. We lost to Bradford away by 50 points to five. We lost to Featherston away, 38-3. We put the second team in. We put the reserves and kids in and, and players who weren't going to play at Wembley. But every now and again, you had to throw Topo in. You had to throw Mike Lankowski in. You had to throw Brian Jewellif in, Trevor Skerritt just so we didn't go down. And I think we avoided relegation a week or two before Wembley so we could relax a little bit. Looking at the team, the starting lineup for Wakefield in this in this in this game in nineteen seventy nine. Les Sheard at full back. Wingers Andrew Fletcher who got the, the famous two tries and still dines off it the, to this day. And Steve Tinker on the other wing. Keith Smith at the centre, we've got a goal and a drop goal along with Steve Diamond, the Welsh International. David Topless at six, Mike Lampowski at seven with John Burke, Alan McCurry and Trevor Skerritt in the front row with Graham Idle, Keith Rain and Paul McDermott in the back row and then Trevor Midgley and Brian Gregory there. Once again, not my error, even, what is it, 11, 12 years before I were born, but I, I know the majority of that team and just some real standout players in that side. Yeah, again, similar to the early 70s, I could re- I could reel this team off of my sleep. You know, you sheared Fletcher Smith, Diamond Jewellif, Topolis Lankowski, Bert McCurry, Skerritt, all the way down. You can, re- you can reel it off as well. Brian Jewellif was injured. He was uh, due on the wing and he sprained his ankle a week or two before. So Steve Tinker came in. Paul McDermott's a, a, a great loose forward. The week before Wembley, or the couple of weeks before Wembley, broke his arm against Featherstone. So he missed Wembley after after playing in all the cup run. Bill Ashurst is missing off, off this team. And what a phenomenal player Bill Ashurst was. He he played, when he actually did play at Wembley, he played on one leg and it was a shame, really. But yes, this, you know, you're you, you John Burks and you're Trevor Skerritt, two Great Britain um, players there. Uh, Graham Idle never let you down. The Rain twins, Keith and Kevin Rain, Trevor Midgley came off the bench uh, for Les Sheard. So yeah, they were my my heroes. We had, we had um, a reunion a few years ago for them all and the majority turned up and they were all there, the ones who are still alive. And looking, I, I appreciate it's you, it were a bit of um, a second string cup against a second string team, but it's only six years early against Blackpool, and there's only one player who played in both, and that's David Topless. Was it a transitional area for Wakefield? Obviously, a lot of the other players had had left the club or weren't playing anymore. Yeah, it must have been into. I think around about this season. Now this season, yeah, 1978, we seemed to because uh, um, we went to Wales and bought uh, three new players. So the 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 um, Purchasing the committee really sort of put the hand in the pockets for a little bit and bought some big players. Uh, Les Sheard was in that squad from the 70s, but uh, Jeff Wraith has obviously got the full back role. Fletcher had come through the Colts. Um, Julif, Diamond, Keith Smith, Mike Lankowski all came from Rugby Union. So we'd, we'd, had, we'd sort of tapped into the Rugby Union market in the late 70s. 
Trevor Skerra came from Bisons, which were an amateur team in uh, Leeds. The Rain Twins came from Glasshouten, an amateur team in Castleford. Graham Idle came from Bramley. Paul McDermott came through the the juniors. So yes, there was a, a massive change in the, in that in that era. And fingers crossed, we can only hope that a game against St. Helens is is that close tomorrow night when we play them against in 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 the league at St. Helens in in, uh, in real time. So yes, game two. The, the game that everybody will still remember, especially from that era, is St. Ellen's 7, Wakefield Trinity 9. It's still the last time we played at Wembley in the Challenge Cup final. Um, once again, fingers crossed it might be bring another one this season. So your third and final game, and I know exactly why you've chosen this one, but it's um, another game that will stand out in recent memory for a lot of fans, and that's Wakefield Trinity 18 and the Australian Kangaroo Tour inside 36 from the 10th of October 1990. There were 7,724 at Bellevue that night. Um, still still lives in the memory of, of pretty much everybody who was there. And um, just legendary on and off the field. Obviously, we spoke to Roy Southernwood about it earlier on this week, about Australian touring teams. You'd never... It, this just literally wouldn't happen anymore. It wouldn't, would it? When, when you come to the third, third game, obviously the sort of hobby and the role I have, I could have picked... There's, there's so many different games you could pick with finals and things. But when a team like Australia, we hadn't Australia came. We was I remember rewinding the year. I was a physio at the time, and you had to qualify and finish in the top eight to qualify to play the touring team the following year. And whenever the Australians or even the Kiwis came, it was exciting. And Trinity never sort of qualified. We never got near the top eight. Half the time we were in the lower leagues, so we hadn't actually played a touring team since 1973, which was 17 years before this. In the 1980. 90 season we finished ninth so we missed we missed the cut but Bradford Northern finished eighth but they banned them from playing for Australia Australia because they put the reserves out when the Kiwis came the year before so they took the game off them so we were given this Australia game for the tour so it was so exciting the fact that Australia were coming to Bellevue and we got a midweek game the play St Helens the week before we got the first midweek game and the first game in Yorkshire when they came in uh, for this 1990 tour now, you briefly said it earlier, but obviously what's so important for you around this time, you were the first team physio. So you were you were involved in absolutely everything on and off the pitch, medical-wise, and you'd just been to Australia briefly before as well. Absolutely. So anybody that listens to our podcast know we're big NRL Australia fans. So in 1989, I had the honour of actually going over there to learn my trade in the NRL. And that I worked in the Winfield Cup with a couple of NRL teams in Sydney. So a lot of these people I knew. Um, I actually worked the, the doctor that came over was a fellow called Nathan Gibbs, who we still talk to to this day. We're still friends with to this day. So he was in the opposition. So it's so exciting that this fellow had sort of looked after me and taught me all sorts in '89. He came over with a touring team in 1990. So we were up against each other. Um, and again, it was just the, the fact that the, the, this Australian side. Uh, we're coming to little old Bellevue. It was so exciting, and some of these stars will probably go through the names in a, in a little in a moment. Normally, when they when you play the midweek teams, it's the second string team. But this squad of thirty odd was so good, anybody could have got in the first team. So when, I don't think this was the second team. It was just another group of um, seventeen players that played. And obviously, you just mentioned it as well. You were, you were twenty five years old at this time. So you, can you can you even imagine? What it must have felt like. Did did obviously you didn't have any effect on the performance, but did even you feel nervous before? Oh, absolutely. I was working at the time. I was a physiotherapist at Doncaster Royal Infirmary, and I was I was half half excited. I couldn't I couldn't settle all day long, and I remember thinking it was raining that night, 
And I remember thinking, oh, I hope the car starts to get back from Doncaster to Wakefield because, you know, what a game this is going to be. It was going to be the highlight of my rugby league physio career um, at the time. We, I think this year we'd also been in the Yorkshire Cup final and played Castleford and lost. But to me, this Australia game was even bigger. So I remember pulling up at the car park thinking, right, I'm here. Thank God I'm here. Um, it doesn't matter what the weather's like, as long as I'm here and I've got all my stuff. And I was as nervous as anything just being the physio. And am I right? Was it was this on Grandstand? It was on Sky. Yeah, Sky. Sky Telly had just started. Uh, um, B Sky B, I think they called it back in 1990. So it was live on Sky on a Wednesday night. And uh, there's a famous image of, obviously we'll talk about the game actually in depth in a minute, but th- there was a fight that broke out and there's a famous image of you being in between everybody trying to tend to an injured player on the floor. Yeah, it was, I used to love getting involved in those days. And what I mean by getting involved, just getting in, getting in them and treating people. You know, I was never one for sort of standing out of the way. You know, there was a big fight at a scrum after about half an hour. Johnny Thompson and Mark Carroll were going toe to toe. And I think Nigel Bell had sort of taken a smack in the, yeah. Uh, and, and I was sort of in the middle. I, I got in the middle of the scrum. And I remember looking up uh, and, and seeing people like, as I say, Mark Carroll and Johnny Thompson going toe to toe. The big Mark Geyer. Play, play. I think Mark Guy was in the middle. He come off the bench. Big David Gillespie, uh, the big Canterbury Bulldogs second rower. Um, Glenn Lazarus and Mark Sargent. And I'm thinking, crikey, what the hell are we doing here? I'm just hoping I don't get sort of in the in the middle of all this. And my dad at the time was the, the photographer for the uh, for the for the club. So he's, he's got a brilliant picture of this mayhem going on around us. All these green and gold and blue and red, red, white and blue fighting. And I'm banging the middle on the floor, treating treating Nigel Bell. I think. I've, am I right? Have you got the Australian team up in front of you? I have. Oh, okay, that's fair. I was actually going to quiz you on the Australian team. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll drop that out because I thought Wakefield's too easy for you because you know every, every Wakefield team. But I'll go through the Australian team now then. So they had um, Greg Alexander at fullback, Dale Shearer and Chris Johns on the wings, Kevin Walters and Brad Fittler in the centres, halfback partnership of Cliffy Lyons and Ricky Stewart, Mark Sargent, Benny Elias, Glenn Lazarus in the front row, then Mark Carroll... David Gillespie and Brad Mackay in the back row. Just a side note, I, I don't know too much about David Gillespie, but on the in the when you listen and watch the Australian old footage, they all call him Concrete. So he must have been he must have been a, a, a tough bloke. And then yeah. coming off coming off the bench, you had Mark Geyer, Mark McGaw, and then Des Asler as well. So once again, like you said, there's no there's no soft soft players or no second string players coming off there. Greg uh, Brandy Alexander got six goals. Walters Fittler. Johns, Stewart, Sargent and Lazarus all got a try. Uh, Dale Shearer and Des Asler got simbined. And Ricky Stewart, Mark Carroll and David Gillespie all got sent off. So um, it's just a fantastic uh, stage to, to be on at Bellevue, I imagine. It was just one of those nights, yeah. That, 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 that way. It wasn't a dirty game, surprisingly enough. But there were so many, like you say, there was Mark Carroll. Johnny Thompson got sent off after half an hour. Um, Billy Conway and Dale Shearer got simbined within the hour. Ricky Stewart got sent off. Des Asler got sent off. But I think I think they were sort of one with a punch and one with an elbow. David Gillespie got sent off for swearing at the referee after the game. So there were four sent off, two Simbin for Australia, and then we had Johnny Thompson sent off and Billy uh, Simbin. I felt sorry for Johnny because he, he spent a lifetime waiting for an opportunity like this. And then half an hour later, um, the referee sent him off. It felt like Kevin Ellett from Southport. I don't know why that stands out. But the poor fellow, I think all he wanted was a good, quiet game, and he ended up sort of being in the um, in the in the in the headlines for sending so many off. But he did actually I remember the penalty count was about twenty four seven to Australia, and and 
the, the man that Bobby Fulton was the coach and he went mad afterwards. But I remember thinking, you know, there were there were there were a few niggles, there were head eye tackles, they were never out of his face. So the, a lot of the penalties were just infringements just because they were niggly and probably getting wound up with him. But your Benny Elias's were in his face, your Ricky Stewart's were in his face, Ted Hasley was in his face. And one by one, they were just all getting simbin because he, he'd had enough of them. And I'll just read out the Wakefield team now. So obviously, once again, this was your error. So you'll know all you'll know all these, and you'll know them all personally. So you've got Chris Perry at fullback, Andy Mason, David Jones on the wings, Jed Byrne and Phil Eden in the centres, Tracy Lazenby and Matt Conway in the halves, Adrian Shelford, Johnny Thompson, and Nigel Bell in the front row, and then the back row of Andy Kelly, Nick Detoit, and Gary Price in the back row with Linton Morris, Richard Slater, Andy Wilson, and Billy Conway coming off the bench. Just looking at this, I was actually looking at the teams before. And Andy Wilson and Billy Conway pretty much played a lot of the games. How come? Why were they on the bench for for this game? I don't know. I think Topo went big. I, I vaguely remember that. And because like Andy Wilson, in the selected team, um, Andy Wilson was on the wing, and then they changed it, changed it all round. Brought Tracy in uh, to stand off. Shoved Jeff. Was Jed Byrne in the team? Did you say? Yeah, centre. Yeah. So they shifted and then put Mason on the wing, which wasn't a natural team. Billy Conway was our hooker, but then he put, put Johnny. So I think he just put, he just put a big pack out there. And your shelfers, your Detroit, your Thompson, your Bells, your Andy Kellys. Um, Chris Morty we missed. Chris Morty was uh, our captain at the time. And he was an ex-kangaroo um, himself. He came over here in 86. And he was he was injured. I think he came over with bad ribs. It was, it was a cracking player with Chris Morty. called him Louie. He played with the Bulldogs, played with the Panthers in Australia. So he missed um, he missed this game, which would, uh, I think he'd have loved to have played. So, yeah, I think Topo went big and tried to get as many big players on the field to begin with. And it worked, because after about half an hour, the score was eight all. But then they scored three tries and it was 24-8 at half time. I was going to actually ask, what do you actually remember about the game itself? Obviously, in the end, Australia won by a considerable amount, 36-18. But what, what do you remember about the actual game? I mean, it threw it down all night. So that's sort of the, that's the, the, the thing everybody remembers. Anybody that went, we got drenched. It just didn't rain. It just threw it down constantly all night. So there are a lot of errors. And I remember us dropping more ball than them. That was one of the big things early on. They dropped a couple of balls, but we dropped twice as many. So that was the thing that stood out more. And I also remember when Australia did hold the ball, by, they were fast. They were quick, they were fast, they were strong. Far better than us. You know, so 36-18, I think we scored three tries past them. Um, and we were, was it three or four tries? Have we got that in front of you? Yeah, Andy Mason, Andy Wilson and Nick DeToyt got the three tries with yeah, so Matt we, Conway we, got three goals. Yeah, there weren't, there weren't many um, other teams that put three tries past them. So we, we sort of got stuck into them. Um, and I think that's where the sort of, uh, you went to Johnny's and your Shelford's and your Kells got stuck into They didn't like it. But when they did have a bit of freedom, by golly, they threw the ball around. Greg Alexander was a, a scrum half back in Australia, but he he, he played full back and he had so much room. Uh, Cliff Lyons was class. Ricky Stewart was class. Des Asler was class. Johns and Shader on the wings. The, I, remember, I just remember him being fast and skillful and slick. It, fun, funnily enough, I actually did my research for, for looking at this tour and I found every single result from this tour. So I'm not sure what the league table... And I imagine Wigan were obviously the best team at that time, but the, the tour itself... So Australia beat St. Ellen's 34-4, they beat Wigan 34-6, they beat Cumbria 42-10, they beat Leeds 22-10, they beat Warrington 26-6, they beat Castleford 28-8, they beat Halifax 36-18, which we heard that story with, with Roy Southernwood earlier on this week, they beat Hull 34-4, 
and they beat Widnes 15-8. So we had the tied best result apart along with Halifax at 36-18. Um, they won the Test Series against Great Britain and then they stuffed France on the way home as well. So an, an unbeaten, just an unbeatable squad. But Wakefield, along with Halifax, put, the, put in the best performance and actually scored the most points against them. We did, and I remember the crowd as well. When you say that, we really got stuck into them and scored three tries against them. I think the attendance was 8,100, but it felt absolutely... Well, I think it was a capacity back in the day. You know, like St. Helens back in those days, I think 15,000 turned up to watch their game. 24,000 turned up to watch Wigan. 16, 18,000 turned up at Leeds. So you're, and 13,000 at, uh, at Hull. So we didn't get as many as everybody else, but by golly, it, it felt as though you were in a cauldron. You felt as though you were in the Coliseum that night. 8,000 packed into Bellevue in that driving rain. And just to name some of the players who were on that tour who didn't play in the game. So the rest of the squad in, involved... The actual captain of the team, Malman Inger, he didn't play. Gary Belcher, Martin Bella, John Cartwright, Laurie Daly, Andrew Ettinghausen, Michael Hancock, Alan Langer, Steve Blocker-Roach, Paul Sirenin and Kerrig Walters. So just world-class talent throughout. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it's like like you said, you could pick you could pick any one of those 30 players to go in the test team and they may well have done. And they still won the Ashes. They, they won the test series 3-0. So like looking at that, you know, those... I remember looking a few years ago. I remember looking at you know your Ricky Stewart, your Cliff Lyons, your Brad Fittlers, your Ben Elias. Seriously, they're in the second team. But yeah, when you look at what you've just mentioned with the with the Walters twins and Roach and Sinanin from Balmain, Alan Langer, Hancock on the wing, Belcher at fullback, Laurie Daly in ET. You know, it's just what a phenomenal squad that was. And I don't know if you know this. I found this after a bit of research the other night. Do you know there was a kangaroo tourist record broken in this game against Wakefield? What, for people sent off? No. So, the youngest ever kangaroo tourist um, was Brad Fittler in this game. At 18 years and 247 days, and he broke it in this game. I wonder if we knew how good he was back then. I don't know, it was 1990. You know, obviously now we know how good he is. I remember him coming through. I remember when I worked at Australia, when I went to Australia to work as a physio, he came through the juniors. He was only 17 and back in 89. I remember him coming through the third grade, the second grade. Nobody had ever heard of him, but there was this the next big thing. Suddenly, a year later, he's in the kangaroos. So, yeah, he must have sort of just sort of at 18, 18, he must have been special to come on this tour. So, I, I don't actually know if that's been broken since by maybe someone like Israel Falau or, or whatever, but at the time, the record for the youngest ever kangaroo tourist was broken on at Bellevue. So I find that I found that fascinating, especially by someone like Brad Fittler, who became well, he's a future immortal, isn't he? So, yeah. um, you know, the New South Wales coach at the minute, the New South Wales winners' medal is is the Brad Fittler medal now. So he's a he's a living legend, and he broke a record for the youngest ever kangaroo tourist at Bellevue on that night, and you were there. Brilliant. <laughs> You know, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at these names again. This is you know, our little old club like Wakefield Trinity, our little old ground like Bellevue. You look at some of these players that's played on it. Obviously, we've talked about somebody's talking about Wally Lewis already. We've had some real legendary characters, Peter Sterling. Throw in this, your Fittlers, your Walters, your Stewarts, your Lions, your, your Haslers. By, by golly, we did have some legends on the field that night. And they only had three subs as well. And we had four subs just looking at that very briefly as well. Bob Linden didn't come on. Bob Linden was named as fourth sub, but didn't come on for some reason. Okay, right. Well, there you go. So there you go. The third game is Wakefield Trinity 18, Australia 36. So just to recap, your first game that you'd be watching time and time again is Wakefield Trinity 47, Blackpool 13. Wakefield Trinity 9, St. Ellen 7 for your second game. And then the third game is Wakefield Trinity 18 and Australia 36. 
I, I, as, as well, it's actually the first game anyone's chosen in the vacant island videos where Wakefield have actually lost. So, but I understand definitely why, why you've chosen it. Um, just a couple of questions just to round off. If you could be washed up on this island for one day with one former Wakefield player, who would it be and why? Say they came out for your birthday. Living, living or dead, it doesn't matter if they've passed away. That's easy. Jonathan Parkin. I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love to have an hour with Jonathan Parkin sat on a back park bench just listening to his stories because he fascinates me. A lot of my other heroes and legends I've met already. Um, so someone like Jonathan Parkin, I'd, uh, I've met his family. I know his family. I've written his book. He's one of my all-time favourites. Passed away in 1972. I'd love to have, I'd love to have sat on a park bench or a, a desert island on a beach <clears throat> talking to Jonathan Parkin. If you could take one piece of Wakefield memorabilia with you, what would it be and why? Well, I should have, should have thought about that one because I've listened to it before. Because um, obviously Peter mentioned uh, the post to try and make a canoe. Um, uh, I would probably take the book, the, the, the Trinity book, the history book, that will keep me going from... Uh, it's been updated this year. <clears throat> There's three books, one called The Dreadnoughts, so it was written in 1960, um, the, um, the, the the Centenary book in 1973, and the um, the history book in 2013 that's been updated this year. So I'll probably wait until the new book's out to take with me, so I've always got some book to read, sat on the bench. I never, real, I never realised the irony of that. Obviously, we're called the Dreadnoughts, and we're on a, on, on a desert island, so I never really thought about that yeah. before creating this. And then last but not least, the last question, if you could actually play in any of these games, which one would it be? Oh, I'd love to have been a scrum half to top all. I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near as good as Mike Lamkowski. I was a scrum half in my day, but I don't know. If, if I'd have been a scrum half, I might not have got to Emily, but I'd, I'd love to play inside top all for a, for a game. Excellent stuff. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to episode 77 of the Wakefield Trinity Heritage Podcast and the fourth instalment of the Vacant Island videos. You can find us on podcasting platforms worldwide and follow us on Facebook under the Wakefield Trinity Heritage banner and on Twitter and Instagram at WT Heritage Pod for further information and real-time updates on the podcast. Massive thank you to my guest, the ever-present Lee Robinson, my dad, for being on Vacant Island videos. We will be returning the following Monday the 3rd of April with our guest former Wakefield winger, Chris Riley. Thank you all for listening and we will catch you all down the road. Hi, it's Cammy Tris Kamara. You have been listening to the Trinity Heritage Podcast with Jamie and Lee Robinson. It's unbelievable!